This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I want to talk about what does it look like for somebody who's trying to theologically integrate their world to A, work in medicine, and B, work in medicine where psychotropic drugs are involved, right? Okay. <laughs> so who are you going to invite on to talk about all uh, of that? Yeah. Well, I was hoping you knew somebody. <laughs> I know so many nobodies. I don't know if I yeah. know any somebodies, but yeah. yeah. Uh, was, um, was there a question in there, though? That no, no, you're a, supposed to... It was, I, that was I think you think I'm sentence. joking when I say that you're supposed to come was, with a question. You are oh. actually... I do yeah. this with every guest. It I mean, usually you know only that takes I've been two interrogated. minutes. I know how this works. <laughs> <laughs> Name, rank, serial number. Uh, where did you hide the Where kitchen? is the microfilm? <laughs> uh, hold on. I got to make sure. Let's see. Hold on. Did this drop out? Okay, we're still on. We're still here. Uh, yeah, so, awesome. so what's an easy... Well, do mm. you... Well, maybe I'll just ask you this question. We'll see if you can think of a, another problem that comes with it. But do you tell people at what at what point in a relationship when you meet somebody do you tell them what you do and what you specialize <laughs> in? It's like a sex worker or something. You know? <laughs> at what point in a relationship is yeah. like a sex worker? It's, it's like, like a sex worker like, or yeah, a Bible I am, professor. I, am, I do have a lot in common with Julia Roberts from like Pretty Woman when I yeah. really like double click yeah. on it. Like I can be whatever you need me to be, baby. Yeah, <laughs> you are. You can kind of chameleon into uh, yeah. different different vocations. I have enough like professional uh, expertise in a wide enough array of things that I just kind of listen to the other person and try to figure out what they're interested in or what they could handle. And then I just kind of pretend to be whatever that was for a little while. Yeah. So your like PTSD coping skills are not going to be helpful in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you a di- direct question. <laughs> You're like... Let's see if I could just subtly walk this off the path. And, I believe uh, the the biblical scholars call this a circumlocutionary answer. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, but it's what, hard, man. It's hard because yeah. if yeah. you're on a plane, like you don't want to start that conversation with just whoever oh, is sitting next oh, to you. God. It yeah. is really like being a biblical scholar because you know people have very different reactions. I just wrote an article like a month ago about that that I put up on like a blog on Brains Magazine, Brains Hmm. with a Z, about like being on a plane and like just the small talk sort of like the fight club small talk kind of thing. Like, all right, you know, the single serving friend. (laughs) It's very clever. Yeah. Get out of my face. Um, Yeah, it's hard. Uh, So I just kind of start with with a thing and then we just leave it at that most of the time right or i wind up just asking a lot of questions and just taking an interest in the other person a lot of the time uh because people are really interesting if you can get them to let their guard down just a little bit right like everybody's got their kind of single serving friend way of talking to you in those circumstances like they've got their little guardrail around like this is uh, this is how i get through this flight without a whole lot of pain or whatever so they stay in their lane and they're like hey uh you know can you hand me the pretzels Uh, i knew a guy that liked pretzels as much as you do or whatever like (laughs) super interesting thanks um how often do you fly that's what i'm wondering now (laughs) Mm, it's more than i want to less than i used to i guess yeah um, but it's, I, you know, like I like to be the one that asks the questions and I like to just clearly real intently. Yeah. That's, right? you've made that very <laughs> obvious here. <laughs> um, uh, you here, realize you're back. on, you realize you're on my podcast now, not, not on they're, your podcast. They're all my podcasts. Okay. Too. As soon as I, 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 every room is my room so long as I'm in it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. not everybody knows it, but, uh, but it's, it is. It's okay. I make, I make them all safe rooms though. So it's fine. 
Um, uh, t- here, I'll come back around to your like uh, other question. The how do you like theologically integrate as somebody that's doing all this like. Like my whole shtick at this point, like I wrote a book and I got a podcast and I have a brand, whatever yeah. that means. You, you, know, got, you got a logo. Cattle, but yeah, like I have an actual logo of me. I have like a comic book character logo, like whatever. The anti-hero's journey, right? Uh, and I do the psychedelic science war storyteller is the byline on all of that, you know, BS or whatever. But it's, it's a, very sexy. I'm just having, I'm having fun with yeah, it, right? Yeah. Um, but like a lot of the clinical work that I do is with difficult cases, severe depression, complex PTSD. I do a lot of work in suicidology. So you don't drop that on people mm. in like a small talk situation like, oh, yeah, like I just talked to people who are 10 out of 10 suicidal all day. Mm. Uh, you know, people don't know how to handle something like that. So I just keep it to myself for the most part. And then I can talk about like, oh, but I have a podcast or oh, I wrote a book and like, that's fine. Like people will handle that or they'll find that fun or interesting or whatever. Um, when I got done, you, you were talking about, you know, m- medical folks and how we have to think a certain way and recall things a certain way. And I, you know, like I went to seminary and got a master of divinity at Southern seminary in Louisville before going to the inter-service physician assistant program that Uncle Sam sent me to to do like the medical training piece, right? And I remember coming back from that. It's just two remarkably different ways of thinking and of Mm -hmm. reading and of being in the world and feeling really disintegrated, like really split, you know, like the left mm-hmm. brain, right th- brain thing we, we recognize neurologically as an oversimplification, but right. it, it's still popular consciousness level. People still get that. I felt like I had learned how to be extremely right brained and extremely left brained without figuring out how to be whole brained. Right. So figuring out that, like, I remember sitting on the back porch with our, our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, mm. the, the New Testament scholar, and just kind of lamenting to him about like, I don't know how to read mm. theology of any kind or philosophy of any kind anymore. And I loved that stuff. That was why I went to seminary at some level was just, I loved it that much. Uh, and then I was just, you know, up to my up to my eyeballs in journal articles and randomized controlled clinical trials and meta analyses and math and and got really good at that. Got good grades on you know in seminary. Got good grades in physician assistant school and came out the other side brain damaged, like just feeling mm. like I'd had my you know cors- corpus callosum severed so that I couldn't talk from my left brain to my right brain there or whatever. And uh, his recommendation to me was to uh, just read fiction and poetry. Uh, he told to me to do that, too. That to <laughs> it's just because yeah, that's what he likes, right? Like he's just projecting. He's like, oh, you know what, like, you know what works you for say. me? <laughs> you know what works for me? Yeah, fiction. Just, uh, yeah. you know, Marilyn Robinson. and a good yeah. fiction. <laughs> a coffee colonic. The guy, yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah. roasts his own coffee and then brews right. it and then shoves it up his... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, I hope he listens to this. Let's see. He, I can tell you right now, he does not listen to the <laughs> I'm going to send it to him after that little uh, joke. All right. Uh, but that, yeah, that didn't help at all, actually. It didn't help me integrate anything at all. Yeah. Uh, I do like poetry, but it, it just took a ton of time. Uh, I did, you know, I got out of the physician assistant program in the military. I graduated January of 2020. I passed the you know national certifying exam that month, got my medical license in February of 2020. And you probably remember what happened in March of 2020. Like the Something, whole planet yeah, got shut yeah. down, the COVID pandemic. And that's a really weird time to start a medical practice. Um, hmm. I went straight uh, out of the, you know, I, I was a combat medic for a decade before going into the inner service physician assistant program. I, I did seminary. <clears throat> here's a, here's a weird story. Here's a psychedelic science war story for you. I took two seminary classes online while I was deployed in Iraq at hmm. one point. I took uh, Christian ethics and biblical counseling while I was over there. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, were you raising your, or I guess it was, a uh, the discussion forum. Uh, yeah, just, just brutal honesty. Uh, oh no, I yeah. lied and lied and lied. Yeah, <laughs> like the so the ethics class was real easy to like. It was just read the books, write the papers, do right, the you know right. do the whatever. The 
the biblical counseling class was, you know, like you're supposed to be doing all this work on doing your work, soul. Yeah, yeah. And you know, like, what are your sins? What sin are you going to kill right now? And like, I'm a part of this big machine that's looking to literally kill a lot of things right. at that point. And they're like, yeah, but you know, what sin? <laughs> are, you, are you really right. struggling right. to get over? And I'm like, all of them, absolutely <laughs> all of them. I'm creating, uh, I'm entangled in new ones right now. Yeah. <laughs> right? I got an A plus in the ethics class, and I couldn't, I just couldn't even do the work mm. in the in the counseling class. And the professor was very, very kind to me. Like I sent him an email at the end of the semester and said, like, hey, here's my situation. I tried as hard as I could, man, but I just can't even connect with this material. And I like I didn't even finish. I didn't take the exams or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like he should have given me an an F minus and he gave me a C minus and said, Look, you should probably just like repeat the class or take a class again. Like if you want the grade to go up, right. uh, you can take it again and do the actual work. But you know, thank you for your service. Here's a C minus in this class. And I just let it ride. That was the only C that I got in seminary <laughs> was thank you for your counseling service. while I was deployed in Iraq or whatever. Okay. Right. Can we can we talk about that for <laughs> one second? This is a yeah, complete yeah. complete tangent. Um, but yeah, I mean, it appears that way now. But we'll bring it back together and integrate yeah. it somehow. How yeah. uh, do you deal with the statement "Thank you for your service" when people figure out you're a vet? Yeah, it used to bother me, right? Uh, and it doesn't anymore. And I found oh, what out did a way you do? Yeah, to like make it not bother me anymore. So it used to be like super awkward, right? Because right. Thank you for your service evokes a bunch of memories for me, right? Like I decided to join and generally whoever is thanking me for my service didn't. And there's like a division that kind of happened after 9-11 in the whole country at that point, right? Because we're an all-volunteer military. We don't have a Mm -hmm. draft like back in Vietnam. Uh, I raised my right hand and I said I'd go and a whole bunch of other people went and that kind of separates people out. If you want to be separate from people, if you're looking for reasons to be divisive, that's an easy one. Like I went, you didn't, screw you, blah, 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 mm-hmm. or whatever. Is is the chip on the shoulder that a lot of us feel coming back naturally because you go downrange and then there's another separation that takes place, right? There's the ones that come home and the ones that don't. And you feel a certain amount of responsibility to them and for them to represent them well and to, you know, to care about that separation that takes place. So you come back and somebody says, thank you for your service. And it, evokes the memories of the people that you loved and that you lost and the decisions that you made and the hardships that you endured and all of those sorts of things in, you know, like a Walmart parking lot in passing or mm-hmm. you know, like all I'm trying to do is get these groceries home and somebody stopping me or whatever. And cause I'm in uniform and it's a drill weekend and they mm-hmm. they want to be polite and they care very much and they're sincere and honest and authentic. And they, they want to say thank you for your service. And why would I get on someone else's thank you? Like that's where I got to was like, well, you say that in a very a moralistic person. tone, <laughs> <laughs> right? Why would I, you know, I thought that was part I, of our continuing duty to the country was to, was to rain just, on a parade. <laughs> <laughs> to make sure fireworks aren't too loud on the 4th of right, July. Exactly, whatever, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it just, it felt, so it felt, it felt like it evoked all of those sorts of things. But then it's also just someone saying thank you. So why right. would gratefulness rub me the wrong way? What does it say about me if someone else being grateful for the life that I chose to live makes me angry at them or feel awkward around them or whatever. Right. So I had to do some reflection. Like why, why is gratefulness making me mad? And I, you know, I did some of that soul searching around some of that. And the, the bridge for me was, you know, like my dad was a Vietnam vet and I remember him telling stories about coming home from Vietnam and, you know, people calling him baby killer people, you know, having the exact opposite response, right? Like America has a lot of growing up to do, but right. in the last 50 years, America's done a significant amount of growing up too. If you get a, a big enough lens on history, you can see the way that, you know, the way that it got summarized by somebody, I forget who the quote's from, is that, you know, Vietnam was fought by the unwilling, led by the unqualified in behalf of the ungrateful. And say whatever you want about the similarities and the difference between the global war on terrorism generation and the Vietnam War generation. The global war on terrorism was fought by the willing in behalf of the grateful. And that was what made the connection for me was like, I'm getting something Mm. that my dad never got. So at the very least, I can receive this person's gratefulness in behalf of my father who never got thanked for his service. And then it felt 
whole. It felt resonant. It felt integrated to me. And now it doesn't bother me at all. I enjoy being thanked for my service in behalf of my dad and in behalf of the loved ones that I have that will never get thanked for their service. And Mm -hmm. it's in that capacity that, you know, it doesn't, it not only doesn't bother me, like I can say you're welcome or it's my pleasure or it's been an honor. Those sorts of things are the things that I usually say in response. I have a buddy that likes to mess with people and he'll say, oh, you're worth it. (laughs) (laughs) That's, see, that's what I needed. I just needed the right, the right comeback. (laughs) Yeah. And that one gets like, I love the looks on people's faces when he pulls that one out. like, uh, Cause I, I think that my, my I think comeback that weirdo is, for his service. Yeah, my comeback has always been, you don't know what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't be thanking yeah. me if you knew. Right. Yeah. Um, or just uh, give him a big old hug. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, my Pick dad, him up off the ground, my dad, when he got back from Okinawa after, where the wounded went, you know, you get healed and then all that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. he said, I think he landed in San Francisco, somewhere in California. He took his duffel bag with every uniform. In it and threw it in a dumpster. Uh, oh yeah, know, it was it yeah. was that bad. It was sixty eight, so it was kind of yeah. My dad burned the, everything, all yeah. the medals, all of the whatever before I was ever born. Like he yeah. just chucked all that stuff and moved on because he was like, whatever it was, it wasn't worth it compared to what he lost. Is kind of how he summarized it. And then yeah. he never talked about that stuff, man. Like yeah. I was super curious, right? Your kid, your yeah, dad, yeah. Like, what, what's the what's the stories? What the he just never talked about my it. My dad yeah. was an open book. Uh, he, oh, you know, he was okay. great. He was great. Just very sober. Very like. Didn't glamorize anything, just very direct. My friend's dads d- were not. They would not. They were heavy drinkers or whatever, but they, they would not talk about it. Yeah. But, but I, kn- I had a lot of dads in, our, in my life that were Vietnam vets in, in one way or sure. another. So, Yeah, it was weird. We grew up uh, – my dad was one of the only Vietnam vets that I knew. Like, he didn't hang out with vets. He didn't yeah, – you know, like, he kind of – he checked that block. He did his time. He, you know, served with honor or whatever, and then he moved on, and he was like, I don't – we hung out with church people instead, which I don't right. think is an upgrade by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Depends but anyway. what kind of churches. <laughs> That's fair. That's yeah. entirely uh, maybe a little fair. Anyway. Um so you're, that's interesting that you were taking seminary classes while you were in Iraq doing combat medic <laughs> duty with an infantry unit, I assume. I was with a military police on that trip. Ooh, yuck. Well, I mean, sorry. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to get yourself in trouble, right? No, that they, sounds they, horrible. They like, to, they like to say you can't spell pimp without MP. And I, <laughs> and I always responded, you can't spell wimp without MP oh, either. Wow. So, all right. You know, yeah. yeah, we'd go back and forth. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was the senior medic for a military police company and then the headquarters platoon sergeant eventually, too. So I assume MP units in Iraq were also getting tapped for all kinds of... Non, yeah, so it's multi-purpose, yeah, not yeah. military police, right? Yeah. Like, because the MP units get heavier guns loaded out on their trucks. People don't realize that, mm-hmm. like, the infantry is when they say light infantry, it means carry really heavy rucks and really right. light weapons, right. which is exactly. stupid. And then whenever the MPs get called out, like they're the ones with the you know Mark nineteen grenade launcher machine guns and the Modus you know fifty cal machine guns mm-hmm. loaded on the trucks. So they were uh, not to be messed with uh, in any way. But on, on on that particular trip, we were doing PSD missions, personal security detail stuff. Mm. So, like, uh, distinguished visitors to the Victory Base Complex there in, in Baghdad, they were protecting, you know, the Secretary of the Army or the um, head of Homeland Security or some of those people. When they'd, they'd come through, we'd be on their security details. We weren't the cool guys with, like, beards and steroids. We were all still nerds wearing our uniforms right. and stuff or whatever, right. but... It was the same mission, same you know training, same skill sets to develop and stuff. Yeah, okay, that sounds okay. So that's rather boring stuff, but let's get back to the interesting <laughs> stuff. I remember uh, running, uh, going out on a run on Camo Hill, getting like some uh, miles in, listening to the Reformed Forum podcast with uh, Scott Oliphant's son. Jared. Yes, the, I remember that uh, podcast. Do you know Jared? I don't know him, but yeah. I remember that podcast, yeah. They were interviewing James Dolezal about the doctrine of divine simplicity, and then we started getting indirect fire, artillery, and improvised rockets and some of that sort of stuff. So I'm just laying down on Camo Hill, hoping not to die, listening right. to those you know, very smart individuals talk about you know, very, very important. There's a journal article on that, you know, like... Uh, how how my pucker factor 
help me understand the simplicity of God. <laughs> you want to talk about collapsing everything down to oneness. <laughs> you don't need psychedelics for all of that sort of stuff. You can do it naturally. <laughs> You're only one Valsalvo away from a... Take cover! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, um, and so you worked as a combat medic. You eventually got all the... Uh, sorry, we uh, we taxpayers paid to put you through basically medical training of, of the highest quality. <laughs> that's that's the way I like the way yeah. I like to explain it is if you want someone to teach you medicine, pay to go to a medical program. If you want someone to pay you to teach yourself medicine, oh, you <laughs> then you go yeah. through the military's program. I think right? pay, and, and that's that's not entirely fair, anything. but it's yeah. it comes at you so fast. Yeah. There's no other way. Like if you can't teach yourself, then yeah. you're not going to get through a military education. Like the inter-service physician assistant program is amazing, but it is an academic like jumping into a gang. The first 16 months is just a beatdown uh, academically, mm-hmm. right? Like you're just going to have exams two or three times a week. You're going to get 900 to a thousand slides on PowerPoint plus some book chapters to read. And it's just like, let's go. And if it's, there's the potential to have two bad days and they be the wrong two bad days mm-hmm. on exams and get rolled all the way out of the program. It's oh. not like, Oh, well you got to repeat a class and take it next semester or whatever. It's like, there's a two test block. And if you get below a 50 on one of those tests, even if you get a hundred on the other test, you're not passing that block. Oh, so they do a, a block system where you don't go to the next block until you've completed the prior block. You have to you have to pass them all. Yeah, the whole thing for that block to get to the next one. Now they have like a recycle program right. where you could maybe get recycled once or twice, or and they change the policies around that from time to time or whatever. But I had friends, way more experienced friends, you know, SF medics and stuff like that, smarter than me, better than me in virtually every way that just had the wrong two bad days and got rolled all the way out of the program, right? That's how you get people to self-study is you put their entire life and career on the line. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, but, you yeah. know, like they're paying me, right? Like yeah. I'm getting staff I'm, sergeant yeah, pay I mean, to be here. Like I should be grateful or whatever. And I, you know, like, yeah, I get that. You know, like it's it's complicated. Your life belongs to them. Yeah, no, that's exactly my training. My initial training was a 29 block sequence and it was, uh, you could get an 80. Yeah. Um, I think an, <laughs> below an 80 was, uh, was failing. Right. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that was it. But I was a high school dropout, so it was like you want to talk about a great way to learn how to study, um, motivate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Getting up at there four were, every morning. So like it, it was such a weird nexus point, right? Because like academics in general is a weird subculture. Mm-hmm. The military in general is a weird Very subculture. Weird subculture yeah. Medicine in oh, general yeah, is true. a weird subculture, and you just get slammed into like. And, it, and you're in a physician assistant program, so you're not – like there's doctors teaching it, and the relationship between PAs and doctors as a profession is complicated. So you're, like, you're just in this weird middle space of, at the nexus of so many things that are going on uh, that you could just get overwhelmed mm-hmm. so easily in that program. And I saw it happen to really good people. You know? Oh, I could imagine. Yeah. That's a, that's We'd be out, you know, like it's like Friday morning. You're going to take an exam on, you know, obstetrics and gynecology at 7 a.m. And at 4.30 in the morning, you're out and you're going to go on a three-mile run around like right. the parade ground for motivation. Like it's family day or something, right? Like we want you to wear your Halloween costumes because it's going to be fun. <laughs> I need to cram. Right. I need to cram right. so I can pass this exam. Nope, you're going to stand here. And then you're going to run real slow around this. And then we're going to, yeah, good luck. <laughs> You know, as I say, it prepares you for life because, you know, yeah, my job in IT just, was just like that. <laughs> right. It's just Halloween yeah, costumes yeah, and yeah. torture. Um, <laughs> so you said you don't feel like you integrated your left and your right side of your brain, knowing that that's a caricature. Your brain, which is basically a computer, um, which is the... <laughs> I never thought about that. Which is the left and right. the right side of every, the computer? I didn't. Every every shrink's favorite oversimplification yeah. ever Dang since it. you know uh, Piaget came up with whatever you know developmentally. Like ah yes, it's just a word processor. Right. It's a much right. more than that processor. Yeah. Right. Here, let me let me drop something on that one real fast yeah. if you want to. You right? Like so 
we have this oversimplification about what reality is. Here, let me do this psychedelic science piece now yeah, that I've told some war say. stories or whatever. Um, there's this thing that you perceive as reality and I perceive as reality that we call the consensus reality state. And we've been taught to think that you are a sensor that there are, you know, five-ish senses that you have and that you perceive reality by being passively getting that from your environment. It goes up into your brain and your brain turns it into like thoughts or uh, sight or whatever, right? But you're essentially passively receiving that. And that's an oversimplification. Mm -hmm. The upper part of your brain, the cortex, is creating a model. And the model is dripping down like a shower of water towards the brainstem. And the brainstem is bringing up sensations from the body. And what happens in that space in between the cortex, you can think of the, you know, the brainstem is sending up fire and the cortex is sending down water and your reality state in between is the combination of smoke and steam that's created by dripping water, drizzling water over fire at the same time. So your consensus reality state is to some degree conditioned by the model that your cortex has created based on the model that it inherited Mm -hmm. going back generations and generations uh, into your own history from inheriting all of the genes that coded for your brain to be made in the first place, as well as all of the actual memories that you have, right? But you can't see what's going on behind your head. You can't see what's going on on the bridge of your nose, right? There are all of these ways that you're, you're limited and your models are limited too. So the reality, the consensus reality state is this ether in between the fire and the water. And what you know, psychedelic medicines do is open up the potential for the model to perceive things that it wouldn't normally perceive in very distinct sciencey sorts of ways that have to do with receptor subtypes and brain regions and, and all of those sorts of things. But what you know helped me to integrate things was being able to open up the model to allow me to bring together a whole bunch of the experiences that I'd had in the past so that I perceive my own senses in a different way and I perceive my own story in a different way and I'm able to think medically and I'm able to think poetically and I'm able to try to live out of uh, a whole different way of perceiving reality. It's like metanoia, uh, changing your mind, but more like changing a diaper rather than just doing a 180 or whatever the favorite way the youth group likes to talk about repentance is. Does that make sense? No, not at all. But I think I followed. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a TED Talk. I followed along. I'm not sure I understood. Um, I enjoyed every second of that nonsense. Well, okay, so um, I think this actively crafting your concepts in your I think of the world conceptually but that's probably just the metaphor and that I'm used to um, the ideologue that works for me but um, I think this is a, one of those things that most of us don't think about and uh, is that we are actively shaping the input that's coming in um, mm-hmm. and I remember the the research that kind of kicked it over for me was uh, the actual the research on nonverbal uh, gesturing that okay. showed that yeah, yeah. the way you analog communication, yeah. yeah, the way you gesture when you discuss a topic actually shapes the topic in your own thinking, right? And sure. So that kind of sure. we, it's not just our generation. I think there's a heavy enlightenment view that basically it always presumes the real stuff is deep inside of us, and mm-hmm. uh, and then all the stuff out here is just kind of like puppets on a stage or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so the goal of what it means to be an authentic human is for the real stuff to somehow come out. And that comes out in poetry, movement, dance, Mm. uh, performance, Mm -hmm. whatever, uh, verbal performance. Um, And I think I've come to the conclusion that I think the science basically supports is that there's a very dynamic relationship between what your body is doing and it's shaping and crafting and what's coming out and going in. There's a very dynamic relationship that your movement, uh, and by movement I also mean like how you constrict your cornea or how you, you know, how you move your cornea to to focus on things like very subtle things. Um, That it's all rearranging each other, but it's some kind of dance that seems to have some stability to it. And so, because I think a lot of people would hear what you say about the the fire and the mist and the, the the, the rain and the fire making this mist where kind of reality uh, subsists. Um, the, the what's unnerving about that is a it, it, it means that objective reality even in, if even if there's an objective world it doesn't mean we get direct access to it objectively 
Um, right. Which is a generalized... Brain's locked in a box, yeah. and you prefer it to be that way, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there are there are thought experiments where they think you can just put a brain in a vat and still have all the same reality, right? Um, sure. But the... Um, but I think that's the thing that most people are concerned about is they say, well, that all sounds like everything is relative and subjective and that there is nothing firm for us to kind of lock into. Um, and I, I think it's the fear between total relativism and like the actual realities of relativity, that everything is kind of in flux. Uh, so where do you where do you think stability lies in that model? Mm. Stability. Because I, I think even, you know, I say people get nervous about rel- relativism, but it's actually an emotional, I think there's an emotional need. I mean, even for, uh, attachment reactive disorder in some ways is a loss of stability. And so I think yeah. a lot of what yeah. we need as humans is some sense of real contact with reality that is trustworthy and knowable. But they hear that and they think, oh, this is taking out any kind of trustworthiness of reality or, you know, why aren't, is everybody there, therefore just basically some version of insane or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, is, <laughs> is everybody just some version of insane? <laughs> well, Somebody yeah. Me. I mean, that's yeah. like so, when a student like, tells oh, me, like, oh, my family's really messed up. I'm like, yeah, I've been in the family. I know. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's, part of the, yeah. it's part of the drill, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. So stability, right? So that's an illusion. Uh, but that's the the point is of some of this is to recognize that the whole thing to some degree is an illusion. And then that you're the, if you are the one that's creating your own illusions, maybe you have more influence over them than you realized. So, you know, if all the lines are arbitrary lines and all the numbers are imaginary numbers, then maybe you can play with some of those quote unquote realities in new ways. Right. It doesn't mean like you should just, uh, walk out into traffic as a way of testing this out the first time out the gate. But, uh, ultimately you're going to find stability as like an emotional thing, right? You're going to feel peace. So you need to figure out where you find peace and then hang out there for a while and see what exactly that is. What is it for you to feel comfortable, for you to feel peaceful, for you to feel joyful, to be in touch with those sorts of things? And you'll, you'll start to discover like what's the balance of finding peace between, you know, what's going on out, quote unquote, outside of me and quote unquote, inside of me, right? Because the line drawn there is an arbitrary line, like the, you know, the surface of your body is still permeable to some degree, we can get water through it, we can get, we don't have to have a needle, <laughs> you're, right? talking about like enema? You're, you're breathing in and out, we're coming back around, yeah, right? Yeah. Like you can be at peace, right laying on a hill listening to a reformed theology podcast about divine simplicity while rockets are exploding around you if you're able to access peace in a unique way. Uh, So maybe the circumstances and the environment don't matter as much as we've been conditioned to believe that they do. Not that they don't matter at all, but maybe you just think they matter more than they could if you saw reality in a different way. And that's some of, you know, like I play around with this a bunch in my book and like in the podcast interviews, everybody kind of does their own thing with it or whatever. Right. But you know, ultimately the, the only real sin I'll say in my book is to make something out of nothing. Creating out of nothing Mm -hmm. is the original sin. Uh, Creatio ex nihilo, if you will. Uh, so what are you going to do though? How do you escape from creating something? Well, if you're going to create something, why don't you create something beautiful? Stop creating the stories that you don't like and start creating the ones that you do. This sounds a lot like uh, manifesting. What is manifesting? Or seriously? Wait, how old are your kids? Are you talking about like manifest destiny? No, no, no. You have okay. You must not have teenagers yet, or. I have one, oh. just barely. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, so if your kids were slightly older, you'd know exactly what manifesting. Manifesting is you tell yourself. Con- you've heard versions of this before, but it's the new TikTok version, which is oh, okay. You know, you yeah. say I'm gonna school me. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna give it a try. Why the heck not? I'm gonna like. A, I'm gonna be a. <laughs> I'm gonna be a successful person. I'm gonna be a. You know, like I want this boyfriend or this girlfriend, and so I'm just gonna say every day to myself, uh, I want this person. They're gonna be my girlfriend. They're gonna. You know, it's. You know, it's almost like a, a, yeah, of course. Um, I've got all the boyfriends I ever wanted. Uh, Look, 
we can laugh about this, but uh, you know, in in Mesopotamia, they they had these uh, omenology and dream interpretation tablets, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about it's this. really yeah. just fascinating. It's fascinating both in its complexity and its depth and its logical rigor. Like the, so, mm. they they use modus ponens and modus tollens logic throughout. P, if P then Q, and if not Q then not P. So it's very, QED. very, a very tightly rigorous way of thinking about the world. Uh, extremely mm. systematic, um, and you had to be a fairly intelligent person just to follow the logic. It wasn't just like if this star happens on this day, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, it, I mean, it was some. It's like Alvin Plantinga from ancient Sumeria yes, or something. Uh, and you had to be able to speak, uh, speak and write, or at least read and write in the yeah. living language and a language that had been dead for two thousand years. Um, okay, yeah. It, so basically, they're, like, they're just alvinizing yeah. their own way. Yeah. So um, manifesting is alvinizing. Is that what you're no, saying? No, no. The question becomes how. Because you said, well, how does this work? You know, you asked the, the basic question: Does this work? Like, why would anybody believe in this stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people, even the Greeks, when they encountered the Mesopotamian systems of wisdom, kind of questioned, like, wow, these people mathematically and logically are, are, and linguistically are amazingly brilliant, more than anybody we've ever encountered, even in our own culture. Um, and yet they can't seem to figure out that none of this actually works, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, the, the tablet said, don't go to war yeah. under these conditions. So the king didn't go to war, but then he got his butt handed to him because he didn't take yeah, proactive. He yeah, yeah, exactly. The tablets really wanted him to go down in the first place yeah. is the problem. So, right? like, who's, who's actually behind the tablets? Who are we asking these questions well, to? Well, uh, for them, it's pretty easy. It's actually the gods before the floods. So the tablets are the no, only thing that You can't trust any of floods. those sons of yeah. bitches for sure, right? <laughs> like They're going to flood the whole place every time they get mad. Because it was noisy, right? So Flush that toy. This comes back to the, <laughs> this comes back to the stability issue because you said does okay. it work? Yeah. And I, I thought you might say, uh, look, when it comes to illusion, because you're in a medical you're you know a medical practitioner, which is based on a lot of research, and re- research is based on lots of regular and uh, stable contact with reality uh, if it's done well, right? <laughs> You'd hope, right? Yes. That's, I mean, that's the illusion that my profession's I mean, that, yeah, putting out I, there, right? <laughs> like, there's all kinds of issues to be dealt with there. But on a good day, you would you would hope that there would be regular, steady yes. contact with reality. You would perform surgery on the right side of the person where the tumor is located. Correct. Well, you know about yeah. that guy and that doctor in Florida. I'm probably sure it happens when this the, that cut off the wrong, amputated the wrong leg, and you know they. Shit happens, well, you man. know how they Shit mark happens. no. <laughs> Because you know how they mark the leg. Like, you go yeah, in there, they got, like, Sharpie very, all over yeah, it, right? Yeah, it's very thorough is how it's supposed and to all be All I can done, think right? is, like, he's sawing off one leg and looking at the other one going, man, he ought to have that one looked at, too. <laughs> Boy, yeah. <laughs> be sure and make a follow-up appointment yeah. for that other leg. <laughs> uh, or he could have just done a twofer. Um, yeah. So yeah. Well, that's how. Have you ever like looked into the history of surgery? That's they called it the butchering art back at the turn of the nineteenth century. I mean, like they were just big old farm boys, and whoever could amputate something the fastest with their big old leather aprons, smoking cigars yeah. to cover up the smell of guts and blood or whatever it makes sense. There was a guy who was legendary because he came up with a technique for amputating both legs, and they named it after him because they named stuff after every person that invents right. a technique. But his technique was two saw cuts through a femur, <laughs> pick them up and slam them on the table to the other side so he didn't have to walk around like WWE style and then two cuts take off the other two leg. Two cuts like... And then everybody else... Yeah. Yeah, he, so he just pick them up like a tablecloth and flip them over and slam them back down on the other side, take the other leg off, because it was all about speed yeah, and yeah, efficiency. Yeah, he, there were stories about how he had assistants who he'd cut their hands or fingers off by accident because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time while he was doing his thing, getting these amputations wow. done as fast as anybody could. And he was you know, like a Hulk. He was like a gorilla doing this sort of stuff. So the technique worked for him. But it wasn't exactly okay, translatable so, or whatever, right? So help me. But that's what we're dealing with 150 years ago. We've advanced significantly on <laughs> that, power at tools. least, right? Because <laughs> you had like you like they discovered ether yeah. then, and that was a really big deal. So you could at least sleep through that bit or whatever. Now, uh, okay. We got anesthesia. So what do you do with the illusion and controlling the illusion and thinking about that? Like, how do you fit that in with making decisions as to whether you're going to amputate or not? Hmm. So like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I dig into this a little bit in the book, right? Is that like 
the first firstest first point is is the issue like uh, you're familiar. There's a bunch of different ways to parse this out, right? You're going to say it's properly basic. Oh, if we're going to, sorry, do, I don't follow Alvin you know, Flanagan. His philosophy. foundationalism, or <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, we talked about reform theology before. There's like the presuppositionalists or whatever. Like going back to the old school ones, like Abraham Kuyper or Cornelius Van Til, where it's like you're going to you're going to presuppose something. You're going to have an axiom. You're going to have a starting point, right? Or you can do Gerdel's incompleteness theorem. You want to do it with math. Uh, zero well, is I, I a natural like number. Well, I feel like Gradell threw out the stability and said, "Like, oh, you want this all to be grounded in a large deductive system? Sorry, <laughs> let, so, let me show you why." You're gonna have to tell a lie. You're gonna have to tell a lie to do it, right? His his uh, his uh, Piano Piano's first axiom yeah. is that zero is a natural number, and natural numbers are defined as numbers between one and infinity. Right. So he tells right. a lie. And he says that zero is a natural number, and now you get to play the math game. And sure enough, you can make uh, Hilbert's Hotel Paradox. You can have an infinite hotel with infinite guests and still make room for one more just by shuffling the reservations. You get infinite hospitality. There's always room for jello if you accept the first lie, if you accept the first axiom, then all the other dominoes drop, and then you play the game by those rules, right? So... <laughs> Whatever game you choose, math or medicine right. or philosophy or biblical scholarship or law or politics or whatever, there's a first axiom. And you're either going to accept it or reject it. You're either going to play by the rules or you're going to set another set of rules. But whatever you do, the, that first axiom is where the issue lies, right? Between realism and anti-realism and some of those sorts of things. So once you go ahead and accept an axiom, though, you just better play by the rules after that, right? So I accept the axioms of medicine as we practice it now, and then I play the game, and it's a serious game. It's an important game. It's a valuable game, but it's still, to some degree, uh, something that I'm just playing by the rules of at that point. So I, you know, I practice medicine exactly the way that evidence-based medicine requires me to practice it, but I don't confuse the practice of evidence-based medicine with some kind of ultimate connection to reality mm. or something like that is that that's how i yeah. kind of hold the space for myself in doing that does that make sense yeah i mean it all sounds very trapped in enlightenment thinking to me but <laughs> i get it depends on what you mean by enlightenment yeah, yeah. are you talking about like the the european yeah, enlightenment european or enlightenment. the asian enlightenment that goes much much further back to like uh that guy under the bodhi tree uh, well I, I go to the real asian enlightenment that goes about a thousand two thousand years before that <laughs> Is that Chinggis Khan? No, no. He, the Hebrew <laughs> Enlightenment. So what do you think that psychedelics do? Because this is a real question for me. In my, in, I mean, <laughs> like in my mind. They allow you to manifest, Drew. No, what do they? They make manifesting um, work. I mean, I know, I know, I read the research on the kind of like the long-term knock-on effects of people using psychedelics. Um, hmm. the, the, which seems to be, honestly, when you read the research, most long-term effects are pretty um, benign to beneficial, depending on what you think is beneficial. Um, yeah, yeah. It's not like long-term crack users or, or sorry, uh, you know, people who use crack in the 80s but haven't used it since or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, my big question is, can you get the benefits of what psychedelics provide without actually using psychedelics? In the same way that I think of, I think it's generally true, this is my own opinion, I have no evidence, to, I'm sure there's some evidence to support this, that most of my students who tell me that they're uh, depressed or they have depression or they have anxiety disorder actually do not. Um, and what they have is depressive states and anxiousness mm. that needs to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And there are very natural ways that they could reconstruct their life uh, that would deal with those uh, I hate to say biologically, but kind of through natural biology of community, 
exercise, et cetera, eating, that kind of stuff. So is there something like that when it comes to psychedelics as well, a natural way to do it and kind of an extreme fast-paced way to do it? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to escape biology so long as you've got a body and you're not like astral projecting in your manifestations or something like that, right? So we we ought to at least incorporate biology. Like that's the issue, right, with, you know, materialism and oversimplifying things is treating biology as everything, but we shouldn't leave biology out. It's, it's not what they affirm that's wrong. It's what they deny. They draw the line too soon or whatever. Right. So what do, what do psychedelics do for us biologically a lot? It seems like, so if you accept the story, the evolutionary story that we would have separated from fungus about 6 million years ago. Right. So we'll take say mushrooms as an example, you know, the plants, plants, uh, we separated from a whole lot further back. Our DNA has a lot less in common with say like, uh, peyote cactus, uh, than it has with a mushroom that contains psilocybin, right? Mushrooms contain serotonin and most people will be familiar with serotonin Mm -hmm. thanks to like the Prozac generation and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So mushrooms contain some of the same stuff that makes your smooth brain less smooth, uh, and function the way that it does. Right. So it seems like a lot of the medical research that I've uh, participated in and then read is around, you know, what do psychedelics do in the brain? What of psilocybin, LSD, uh, mescaline, some of these uh, quote unquote classical psychedelics that seem to exert their, a ton of their influence on, you know, a particular serotonin receptor, the 5-HT2A receptor. And downstream from that, there's a great deal of what we call neuroplasticity that takes place. So your growing brain, it's like miracle grow for your brain. It upregulates brain-derived neurotrophic factor, glial-derived neurotrophic factors, all of these sorts of, you know, sciencey things that essentially mean if your brain has been injured by something, whatever it is, excessive fear and worry for decades can decrease hippocampal density, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can lose a certain amount of brain matter uh, from being chronically depressed, being chronically Mm -hmm. anxious, from getting hit in the head, from drinking alcohol to self-medicate those things or smoking crack or whatever the case might be, right? There are things that kill brain cells and there are things that heal brain cells and there are things that just support the normal function of brain cells and it seems that some of these especially the classical psychedelics uh, you know turn things up so that not only is there the potential to heal a lot of conditions like that's where the the first clinical trials around psilocybin that's the quote-unquote active ingredient in magic mushrooms uh is was in death anxiety in end of life Mm -hmm. care in oncology patients you know roland griffiths uh, famous researcher from johns hopkins uh did those first trials helping people who are at the end of their lives and they they take a considerable dose of psilocybin and feel comfortable with the the end of their lives they say okay i put the pieces together i'm i understand what's happened i'm okay and i can kind of manage going through the end of life that was some of the the early trials now we're doing research on alzheimer's and parkinson's and autoimmune disorders Mm -hmm. and there's a whole whole array of things right and to come back to kind of one of the questions you were asking in there, do you have to have a psychedelic to have those effects? That's another uh, avenue of research that I'm kind of interested mm. in with some partners here in the next year that we call psychedelic uh, analogs. So the molecule is very similar to what you find in a mushroom or in a cactus or in a you know, tree bark in West Africa or whatever the case mm. might be that causes these psychedelic experiences where you have an altered reality. They call them non-ordinary states of consciousness. It's just it's a fancy you know, term. <laughs> right, exactly. It's a sciencey yeah. way of talking about, like you know, going to Mars for a, you know what feels like a million years, but is actually forty five minutes or whatever. Uh, do you have to have that weird experience in order to have the upregulation mm. of you know brain growth? And that's what you know we're trying to investigate with these analogs: is can you you know not have a weird day and still have reversal of some of these conditions? And it even seems so like. The, the acronym that we use in my clinics is SHOT for the treatment trajectory that we try to put everybody on. It's stabilize, heal, optimize, and thrive. Somebody who's in you know, an, acute, an acutely suicidal situation needs su- stabilized, and that may involve a great deal of medicine. That may involve hospitalization. That may involve a whole bunch of things. Once somebody's stabilized, we want to heal them of whatever might be the source of some of the 
symptoms that they're enduring. And then once you get to the other side of that, that's kind of where the medical model's fine with you just going off on your mm -hmm. own, right? Like we've, we've cured the infection. You can go back to rolling around in your, you know, pigsty of a house or right. whatever. Like we're not coming home and making you clean up or whatever, but you keep coming back with these infections. What are we going to do? Right. Um, you know, but if you want to optimize the way that your brain works, if you want to thrive in life, there's some potential there too. So that it seems like, and this is just theoretical. This is like personal opinion rather than professional opinion at this point. Right. But, uh, you require certain nutrients to make a brain in the first place, mm -hmm. right? Like we know that moms who are making babies inside of them that are folate deficient, right. that the neural tubes don't develop properly and you can have you know, birth defects in babies where moms have got a folate deficiency. There are these cofactors that are necessary and they're necessary throughout all of life to develop a brain after you're born all the way up until you've got a whole brain 26 27 years old is how long it takes to knit together the last structural pieces of the prefrontal cortex it seems so you need to have enough folate the whole time you need to have enough iron the whole time you need to have enough b12 there's a whole bunch of things you need to have the whole time and you need to not get hit in the head too many times and and all of that sort of stuff comes together to have an overall healthy brain in the first place and then it seems like if you really want your brain to wire up in a fully human way at 26 or 27 or later, you might need at least one exposure to these particular molecules. The mm -hmm. same way that you couldn't make the brain properly in the first place without folate, you may not be able to be fully yourself without an exposure to something like a 5-HT2A receptor uh, agonist like psilocybin right. or mescaline or LSD or some of those sorts of things. Again, I don't have the, you know, the evidence to back up something right. like that. That's just uh, sort of theorizing and like leaning real far out over the front of my right. ski tips and possibility at any moment. Uh, but that's what it seems like. I don't, and again, I don't, I'm still a part of the department of defense. My personal experience with this stuff is intensely limited. I've read tons of the papers. I'm certified to provide MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD. If slash when that medicine gets rescheduled by the FDA, I do provide as a tool ketamine assisted therapy because ketamine is legal at high doses. It's an anesthetic mm -hmm. at low doses. We use it to treat, uh, chronic depression, severe PTSD, suicidality, some of those sorts of things, but that's an off-label use. I don't have the personal experiences with these classical psychedelics that a lot of other folks have had just because it's too risky mm -hmm. for me. Like I have a family, right. I have, you know, uh, a job, I have a whole bunch of reasons and I'm happy. I'm in a good place. Like I don't feel like I need to do any of that stuff. So why would I uh, risk anything while they're still illegal to, to have an experience like that. Now, would I like to someday? Absolutely. But I don't know when the right time will be for me to do something like that. And I, like I said, I'm in a good place. So I'm not super anxious or super overeager around any of right. that. So just for your audience's sake, to be clear, I'm not like some kind of mushroom head on here saying everybody needs to eat a right. mushroom in order to be fully human or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what that's like. And I don't know if that's true. But the science to me seems to lean that direction. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, if we're just to be honest, a parallel conversation like this happened 10, 20 years ago with marijuana. And it was very clear, mm -hmm. like medical marijuana, medical marijuana, medical, which I, I'm sure that marijuana right. has some medical benefits in certain circumstances. Like I do not doubt that sure. at all. But it was very clear to anybody who was taking breaths and had a pulse that really people just wanted to make <laughs> marijuana legal, like alcohol was, <laughs> to use it recreationally. And this is the doorway yeah, they were yeah. trying to walk through. And so I think people hear this discussion sure. and they're thinking like, oh, they just want everybody to start taking LSD, you know, dropping Molly left and right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and A, that would be, as somebody who did do LSD in the 80s, uh, I, <laughs> I can tell you that, <laughs> yeah. that I can imagine ways in which that could really go sideways. I have... Uh, um, I have a family member who does some of these guided trips, and um, mm -hmm. and it was it's from their account, it's been very good for them. But I can also I I don't even know if imagine is the right word. I can recall very clearly some ways in which that can go sideways on you. Uh, so it is something that has to be done with care. Um, sure. 
The end of life thing I, I think is interesting because I hadn't thought about. I'd read some of the end of life research, but I actually hadn't put this together. Is because a lot of that uh, seemed to be around the fear of death, um, and uh, yeah. and I hadn't thought about the reintegration part. But if you've been around people when they're dying, like actively dying, not like just mm-hmm. entering hospice or whatever, but um, it I, it's funny. It is like watching somebody go through a trip um, because they are sitting there processing for i mean in some case my mom's case it was like for six days straight she was sitting there clearly talking to people from her past putting things together moving around like absolutely reorganizing everything and so i i I think the fear would be that there has to be some evidence that this would help in that case versus does this in other words take over and give a simulated version of that rather than letting the not that i want to be super crunchy here but to say let the body do it the way it wanted to do it in the first place yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I, I don't think that – I mean, I understand why people think that's super crunchy, but I disagree. So you're recognizing uh, – one of the famous researchers in psychedelic medicine at this point is Dr. Stan Groff, and he called what you're describing condensed experiences mm. or coexes for short. And birth is a condensed right. experience. There's just so much going on in such a short window of time when someone is being mm-hmm. born. The same is true of when somebody's dying. It's a condensed experience. There's so much more going on than you can even begin to document. Mm-hmm. And there's all these weird, you know, synchronicities mm-hmm. and mysteries and, you know, like my grandfather was a pilot and we heard a plane fly over, you know, the his funeral, uh, you know, like just all of these sorts of things. Like what exactly is going on uh, in these condensed experiences? And then psychedelic journeys are also mm-hmm. considered coexes, condensed experiences, right? And inside of your own head, there's this little gland called the pineal gland or the pineal gland, depending on how you like to say the letter I, um, that creates dimethyltryptamine, which is DMT, which is a classic psychedelic, which is a piece of what you can get from licking a, you know, Sonoran desert toad or, you know, people smoke DMT in ayahuasca ceremonies. You get a combination of a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and DMT from a vine. Uh, It's a psychedelic substance that's made inside of your own head. And there are ways of breathing that Dr. Groff and his wife developed called holotropic breathwork. The theory is, we don't know this yet, but the theory is that it stimulates the pineal to upregulate a certain amount of DMT naturally. Now, is that what was happening with your mother in those six days at the end of her life? Like, I've seen death rattles Mm -hmm. before, right? We call it a death rattle for a reason. Vibrating at a certain frequency from the breathing is what Mm -hmm. seems to be what stimulates the pineal gland to release higher amounts of DMT. So is that what happens when you're being Mm -hmm. born? Is that what happens while you're having a baby? Is that what happens at the end? Maybe. We don't know. We don't know enough to say one way or the other, but it's the best theory that we've been able to come up with so far. So whenever you have, uh, you know, quote unquote, bad trip, it may be that you're just having an experience, a condensed experience that you haven't done the work on your own psyche or your own soul to prepare you to handle. I have a friend, when I went through the training for MDMA-assisted therapy, there were a lot of folks there who were a lot more experienced both professionally and personally than me. Like at one point, one of them pulled me aside. She was very kind, very nice and said, uh, uh, you've never done any drugs, have you? (laughs) And I was like, does it say narc on my forehead somewhere or something like big, ugly white guy coming in to do the, you know, the uh, psychedelic training or whatever. And she was just super nice. Like, no, you know, like I could just tell or whatever. And, uh, and that's okay. But there were people there who were a lot more experienced than me that dropped a whole bunch of knowledge on me. And they suggested, one of them suggested to me that like the different medicines have different applications, right? The same way that you wouldn't give an antibiotic to somebody for just a headache, you shouldn't be using different plant medicines or psychedelic medicines uh, just willy-nilly all over the place, right? So there are medicines that give someone a quote-unquote inner journey like MDMA, Uh, where someone goes inward and is able to kind of access traumatic memories from a place that turns down fear Mm -hmm. biologically in your brain, turns down the activity in the fear circuitry, and turns up the activity in the love circuitry Mm -hmm. so that you can be 
projecting yourself back into the worst memories of your entire life, but from a place of resilience and distance rather than from a place of fear and overwhelm. And then you can integrate those memories. They get put into your head in a different way so that now they're not jumping off the shelf to surprise you. They're just memories Mm -hmm. alongside of all of the other memories. A certain amount of that interior work seems to be necessary to build a platform then from which to do the classical psychedelics, which are more expansive medicines. And if you're not ready to be expanding, then it just feels like you're being pulled apart instead. And that that's kind of what a bad trip is, is it isn't necessarily that the medicine itself caused a bad trip for you, so you shouldn't take it. It's that you weren't ready for whatever it was going to try to teach you in that expansive experience, that condensed experience that you were going to have, right? So you have to do a certain amount of interior work before you can uh, launch a rocket. Otherwise, you're launching a rocket out of a rowboat. And it makes sense why, uh, you know, as a teenager or a college student, uh, you know, doing doing acid just for fun to see see what will happen. Surprise, (laughs) welcome to hell. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, you know, I'll never do that yeah. again. Well, you know, like you yeah. weren't ready. Neurodevelopmentally, you may not be ready. You may not have the biological basis inside your head right. for doing something like that ready. And uh, the emotional maturity to navigate once you get right. there either, right? Like it it might be for adults only or uh, you know, there might be even more than that going yeah. on. But uh it seems like that's uh, a bit of it. There's, you know, contracting medicines that are for inward and there's expansive medicines that are for, you know, optimization and, and, and thriving and healing some of the, the bigger, crazier things. So uh, you described this um, MDMA, which I, am I correct in saying that is the street name of that is used to be ecstasy. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, there's a whole bunch of analogs, right? It's a, it's a derivative of sassafras. <laughs> That's the plant that you can get MDMA from is root yeah. beer, baby, right. sassafras. Uh, I mean, it's 30 or 40 very right, complicated right. chemistry steps <laughs> removed from sassafras. So you got to boil it way right? down. <laughs> just mega dose sassafras. You just boil it root beer into a sassafras. Yeah. yeah. That ain't gonna, yeah, yeah. You gotta, you gotta bring it all the way down to like a bourbon yeah, yeah. level. Uh, so, uh, but MDMA, yeah, street names are like Ecstasy Molly, or Molly yeah, yeah. or Adam or some of those. And and some of those are analogs, too. Like, there's ways to make it, uh, you know, more of a stimulant and less of a, a love right. drug or whatever. Okay. Uh, you, you know, you could call all of that stuff on the street. But the, the clinical trials are with 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine is what MDMA stands for. Okay. Right? So that, you you said that the the thing that can offer you is the ability to access trauma without necessarily the all the other things going along with it so that reminded me of emdr therapy mm-hmm. which is trying to do something very similar through visual uh I, i'm going to say sure. distraction but i'm not sure if they know exactly what it's doing or yeah, yeah we don't know yet what's happening yeah i like huberman did like a whole podcast on emdr and like what we know and what we don't know at this point and the truth is we don't know how right. it works we know that yeah. it works and that, you know, isn't satisfactory to people for some reason. But if it works, like run with it, right? Yeah. I'm all about the placebo effect. Any effect, any effect I can get, I, you know, anything that moves the needle 2%, I mean, I'll take it. When right? I, I was originally going to write a book on ritual that was going to heavily incorporate the placebo effect. And thank goodness a friend talked me out of doing that because it, <laughs> it was heading off in a bad direction. But I ended up reading a lot of placebo research. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, oh, super it's, interesting. it's not only that, but it helped me to love my mother so much more because, you know, she did all kinds of crazy, mm-hmm. like new age stuff. Like really, uh, she was into really sure. crazy, crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Manifesting. Yeah. But there was and- part of me that can then just say like, okay, well, if that makes your back feel better. Go for it, right? Like, who am I to say that that's not working? Why are we going to? Sh- why? Yeah, why hate on that? You know, like, okay, you feel good. I'm yeah, happy that yeah, you feel yeah, good. Exactly. Tell me this crazy story about you know, like your yeah. ancestors explaining to you how this happened. <laughs> Maybe it's right. a good story. Some of those stories are better stories than like the journal article story, <laughs> right? Like, yep, okay, yep. great. It's a, at least tell me a good story. Don't be boring. Yeah. You know, like you remember Heartbreak oh, of Ridge. Course. With, uh, yeah, Clint that classic real, real tank. life war movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I made my wife go back and rewatch it, and I was so disappointed that I love this it's, movie. I was like, oh, why isn't it this is better? It is so cringy all what the happened? way through. Oh, I know. 
He's in the drunk tank and he's like, you can run me and you can beat me and you can starve me and you can kill me. Just don't ever bore me. <laughs> and that's kind of where I'm at at this point is like, yeah. all right. Yeah, science. Great. It's a great yeah. story. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes it's really yeah. friggin' boring. So at least tell me an interesting story. Like your story about omenology uh, now makes me super interested in manifesting. <laughs> I don't know what that, what any of that crap is, but I'll at least give it a Google after we I'm, hang up here. I'm pretty or whatever, sure I've heard you know. it mostly quoted from the Kardashians or somebody in an in I mean, it comes down that stream. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not going that far. I'm not going so, that far. I, I, everybody's got to draw an arbitrary yeah. line somewhere. <laughs> well, uh, this has been super interesting. I'm sure some people are going to uh, have thought about not have thought about this ever before, or thought about thought about psychedelics <laughs> like me thought about it in a very different way. They will think about it for the last time as soon as this is over. <laughs> no, and I think I, I think everybody realizes that this is this research is coming to the fore. Everybody knows there's something real going on here. And then the question is, how do we do mm. this responsibly, and how do we heal? How do we heal people, exactly? Right? Or, or be involved right. in a process of healing for people. And so it's good to know people like you are involved in that. Um, and where Thank can you. they find your your book, the story, the antihero's journey? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Antiheroesjourney.com uh, is where everything is. You can get like links to the podcast, links to all my social media nonsense. You can buy the book. Um, uh, you can buy the book if you want a paperback because you like coasters or doorstops. You can get that from Amazon. If you want, I'm running a sale on the website for the audiobook and the ebook in both English and Spanish translations, all for the low, low price of $29.99. And then uh, just this week i knocked ten dollars off of that for funsies um, did you record the audiobook yes i read the audiobook so in if espanol you want, uh, a bedtime story for adults only then uh yeah it's only available in english right now because i don't have infinite time but eventually i'd like to get the audiobook out there in a bunch of different languages we'll awesome. see Lord willing and the creek don't rise. But yeah, check out the website and it's kind of the nexus point for me and all my books. All right. Ben Askins, thank you so much for your wisdom and your guidance on this journey. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Doc out. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.